Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Closing in on the beginning of the school year, in some places we've actually gotten there. Uh, when people listen to this, I think it'll be sort of first week of school. And while I know we have a lot of listeners who are not, uh, that's not on their radar screen, it is kind of, you know, the national conversation right now, as well as what's going on in our own lives. What, what's what's the state of things uh, school-wise in uh, the Condon household right now? Well, it's, I feel so, I mean, it's just so complicated. We all have big feelings around this, but... Um, our kids are supposed to go back to school next week. Um, we moved our oldest over to the church school, um, in part because the church school's for sure going back in person early. <laughs> um, and because we want them in a Christian environment, obviously, you know, I mean, that's the priority. <laughs> Those things <laughs> go hand in hand, don't they? Right. Yeah. I mean, faith in God means you can open early. Obviously, um, the classes are really small, so it does like there's a lot of reassurance in that. But it is, I totally, mean, totally. I feel like such an asset because I, you know, I have friends that work in the medical center here, and it's a frenetic, crazy situation, and I am carrying like a lot of guilt, feeling like I'm making that worse. But also, um, I need my kids to survive me. <laughs> and so if they can go to school next week in another building with other adults. I'm super excited about that. And they're super excited. So I don't know. But no one, it reminds me of like Emily Large once said, and I feel like I've quoted on her, but it's such a great quote. I think of it all the time, like that, like that she just wants to meet a stay at home mom that's happy being a stay at home mom. And she just wants to meet a mom that works full time that's happy being a mom that works full time. And I feel the same way about this situation. <laughs> like, I haven't met anyone that's like, I feel great about what we're doing. So, mm. yeah. Mm. No one's allowed to be too happy. You know, you always have to carry a good amount of guilt about what you're not doing, no matter what. That's you know? true, actually. Yeah. yeah, I think especially if you're a mother. Yeah, in, yeah. that's in all our, motherhood is. Yeah, you're just guilt about decisions. No, if, if if someone actually was happy and felt good, they, they would have no friends at all. All their friends would be like, "Who are? Like, remind me to never talk to you again." That is the closest I've gotten to spitting coffee on a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> again, if, if that were actually coffee, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> It's nine in the morning where Sarah it's is. We not, should you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, We're it's almost life. 10. Right? We're kidding. We joke. We joke. We kid, we RJ, kid. what about you, buddy? It's been an interesting time school-wise. We were actually back in Houston for a couple days on Friday and Saturday because Jackson's high school, our oldest at the last minute, decided to have an honest-to-goodness in-person physical graduation outside, socially distanced, in Houston in August, which was amazing. Um, but it actually was really good. It was nice for him to see some friends, um, get some closure, you know, have some semblance of a second semester 
senior year. So that was kind of nice. Um, then the next day found out that our middle son's school, which we thought was going back to in-person instruction in a couple of weeks, is actually going to start online. And, and we're concerned about him because he's a sophomore in high school and we just moved to a new yeah. place. And it's like, when is he going to make friends? You know, yeah. and he's a big <laughs> soccer player. And like, interestingly, here in Florida, soccer is a winter sport. So maybe he'll get a chance to do that. But um, and then Marshall uh, is going back to school, I think, in a couple of weeks. His school has said even – it's a K-8 through school, and they said even if no one else goes to school, preschoolers definitely are. And we're like, dear God, yes. yes. Thank you. Mm. So God willing, in a week and a half, he will be in school full time. So he's actually like in a tent in the front yard of the school right now? You I have – like- <laughs> Seriously. Can we camp out early? Is Can we do that? <laughs> um, and then next week we're taking Jack to college, you Gosh. know, um, but who knows how long he'll be there. Cause when we were at, when we were at high school graduation, there were a number of people who had just learned like the day before that their colleges had decided to go fully online and would not be doing residential instruction. And like they bought plane tickets, they had hotel reservations, yeah. they'd shipped things ahead. Um, so it is just total, no one knows what they're doing. Like it's total, yeah. it's just complete chaos. And um, starting or not, it has. It, we all think, oh, what does it look like in October? Is UVA you know? starting? Um, are they are they starting in person? What are they doing? UVA Dave? is doing virtual for the first two weeks, and then they're starting. They are bringing the students back, and the 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 idea is that the students are going to come back anyway because they've all signed leases that they can't get out of because yeah. only few of them live on grounds. Yeah, and also. Um, the you, the community is pretty upset about it, mm. uh, to be honest with you. But um, it's also you know the community revolves around that place, so it'd be kind of it would be sad. It's a no win situation. Like, it's totally like no everything. Win. It's a no. You know, I was forwarded this to Sarah that uh, my wife sent me, which I thought was really encapsulated what a lot of parents are going through. But it, it is also a microcosm of what I think people are going through in a sort of a larger kind of the can't can't win situation. Uh, This is Emily Holmes wrote this on uh, Instagram. She said, if you're wondering why parents are so incredibly stressed out, it's pretty straightforward. And it's not that we just need a break or can't effectively do our jobs or are struggling with all the normalcy we've lost with friends and family, though all of this would be more than enough. Parents are struggling because literally every decision we make now feels like a choice between our children's mental and physical health. And whatever we choose, half the people we know will think we're either reckless with our children's lives or ruining their lives with our paranoia. It's a nightmare. Parents are not okay. I thought that was pretty prescient um, into the situation. We're, we're fortunate enough. Uh, yeah, we've had to, we had to shift gears midstream when we saw that what was happening, it was really the virtual thing was not good uh, for uh, our really? family Really? Three boys situation. at home and that didn't work out well for you? I'm so surprised. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was just telling people, I was like, I don't care about the politics of it at this point. Yeah. I care about my marriage surviving yes. and my kids not like being sent to the ER. Right. Mm. Like that's, th- those those concerns are more important to me as of this moment. Yeah. And talk to me in six weeks. Who knows what's going to happen? But by the sheer grace of God and the mirac- miraculous movement of the Holy Spirit, these boys are apparently going back to school next week. Amazing. Uh, in a very responsible, smaller schools uh, situation. But again, who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Nobody knows. What is, what is, our, what is our motto? Nobody knows anything. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> they did have a yeah. McSweeney's had a very funny article that we highlighted last week called Your Stu- School District's Reopening Survey. It was written by Kara Baskin. Uh, no relation to Carol, as far as I know. <laughs> This fall, you favor one, in-person learning and constant fear. Two, hybrid learning, mixing constant fear with a dollop of logistical chaos. Three, remote learning, marrying logistical chaos with the cold cloak of devastating isolation. Four, moving to Maine and launching your own homeschool. Definitely not four. They describe... They describe in-person learning. If you've ever wondered how to combine pure hopelessness with the ambiance of Alcatraz in its prime, this option might be for you. Two, hybrid. Uh, You will need a reliable internet connection, a work schedule that follows no concrete pattern, a forgiving supervisor, independent wealth, or a Xanax prescription. Uh, and then she, they, she writes, we have also designed a remote learning option in conjunction with an outside vendor who specializes in emailing non-working links to YouTube videos oh as we realize that Google Classroom posed technological challenges. Your child should expect to sit in front of a screen for roughly eight hours a day with allowances for quick movement, breaks, uh, meals, and the occasional primal scream. Rest assured that no matter how you respond to this survey, it won't matter whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta laugh or you'll cry, my friends. Gotta laugh or you'll cry. Yeah, yeah. Any any further thoughts on? Uh, I mean, it's weird how worried I am about judgment. That that's like that is definitely striking to me. That because we are sending them back, um, you know, I've already had some judgment from from people in my life about it, and that's. Uh, and n- none of them have small children at home. And it's just like, you know, I think the most grace I found has been in this like women's group at church because we're all, our kids are at different schools. People are making different decisions. And, we, but we all, no matter what decisions are being made, know how hard this is. And there's just not space for judgment in that. You know what I mean? Like, but it's, it's, it's like I'm having this weird thing of like, you know, I want to like get a picture of them for their first day of school and like maybe post it on my social media next week. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I, it's funny. Like, I mean, I put up some salacious stuff on social media and, and there's like a certain amount of anxiety that comes with that where you're like, what are people going to say? What will the comment section be like? I'm more worried about putting up a picture of my kids going back to school for the first day and having to monitor the comments section than I've ever been about anything else, which I think really says where we are right now. Mm-hmm. I would just say, uh, if you've never been a person who's been in therapy and you have the means to do so, now's not a bad time that to start. A great time. You know, it is. I mean, personal Uh therapy, uh, Uh marital therapy, if you're Uh finding your relationship under a good deal of stress, um, it's not cheap. I know therapists also could probably, they could probably use the money. And Zoom is, you know, Zoom works okay. It's not the worst Uh thing. And it's just nice to have another person. I think it can be nice to have another person in your life um, helping you talk things through, work things through, see things clearly. Um, So, yeah, if you, and, and I... And I've said that to a number of people in my church recently, like, now's a great time to start therapy, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we talk about how parents feel judged, you know, and it's the classic thing of, you know, why do I put my my child in the jacket uh, to, when the, it's cold outside and 95% of the reason is I don't want to be judged by other parents because I'm really not actually worried about the 10-second the walk from the car to the school. But... Um, 
you know, it's not just the judgment we we uh, kind of ca- uh, we that's cast our way. It's the judgment we cast other places. I was talking to my wife last night, and we were. You know, everyone in our situation, there's a, there's such a range of how people have responded, and some people appear to have lost their minds. Mm. You know, um, and you know, people have lost their minds about many things other in the past, and we've and, and it, which is understandable. And like, well, Can I just say it's understandable because everyone is losing their minds just a little bit. Yeah. Well, she was like, she's like, well, I don't want to judge this person, and I don't want to judge this person, uh, someone who is really we feel like imprisoned their children or something, and and, and I. I sort of feel like, well, I want to judge them. You know, like, I feel I feel great judging them right now. Like it makes me feel a lot better about my own behavior. But also, I live in a very uh, blue uh, microcosm, and the second that it became clear that school reopening had been politicized and that people on the right were in favor of it, all of a sudden, like clockwork. Everyone on the left got said, "Oh no, we can't do it." Yes, and I was like, "I was like, wait, I talked to you last week, man. You you said you you couldn't wait, and like there wasn't a, you were looking at the statistics every day, and you were like really optimistic." And I thought to myself, "How driven are we by the perceptions around us and those judgments? And then how much are we enjoying?" Uh, you know, the repentant side of me, how much am I enjoying the ability to feel good about myself, but also just to say, that person is crazy. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the C word, uh, Sarah. The C word. <laughs> the C word. Sarah wrote a wonderful piece for Mockingbird about stuff you've talked about on here, about uh, your family Bible and your grandfather's um, really fluctuating mental health and uh you I, i'm putting words in your mouth but you're, you're saying in cpe yeah you, so i worked in a, psychi- what was it? a psychiatric hospital I, i've never written that before because it's you know i didn't want to offend people but um um well i mean i, I like to offend people but um I was, you know, your first week you get orientation, you know, you're new in a psychiatric hospital setting, you're supposed to be with these people pastorally, and they kept saying, don't say the C word, don't say the C word. And I kept sitting there thinking, who is calling a a psychiatric patient a see you next Tuesday? And (laughs) it took... Why is this being used so casually? (laughs) No, I was like, what is happening? But I just sat there because everyone else seemed to know that this was a thing apparently that happened and was unacceptable. And I was like, obviously unacceptable. It was a week before I realized the C word was crazy. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, now we know. <laughs> oh, well, I love let's how your mind into... works, Sarah Condon. Well, it's just... never changed. I don't. You're just sitting there like, who's? Have they watched Sex in the City? What's happened? Yeah. We've got some uh, great uh, material today. And I want to start by talking about something that Zadie Smith, the wonderful uh, British writer and essayist, uh, she's got a new collection of essays out called Intimations, which I think is mostly written in quarantine. And everything this woman writes, I think, is worth reading. We, we talk about her a lot on uh, the website, especially. I don't know if we've really spoken about her as much here. Um, but she wrote an essay called Suffering Like Mel Gibson in which she addresses the increasingly modern tendency to compare suffering, to neglect one's pain by measuring against someone else's. Um, This is worth mulling over because she talks about Christ, uh, Jesus on the cross, which she does with alarming regularity these days. Um, 
but she, it begins by saying, she, she says, I was sent a meme that made me laugh out loud. It's a photograph of Mel Gibson in a director's chair, calmly talking to Jesus Christ himself. Now, this is, this is it's a picture, um, this is me talking, uh, a kind of a behind-the-scenes picture of the filming of The Passion of the Christ. And Jim Caviezel is sitting next to, uh, Mel Gibson is clean-cut and just, you know, sitting there talking to Jim Caviezel, who plays Jesus, who is in full, bloodied, crown-of-thorns makeup sitting next to him and they're having like a, what looks like a casual conversation. We'll link to it in the show notes because it's really worth, the picture is arresting. So this is, this is uh, Jesus, also in a director's chair, was patiently listening while soaked from head to toe in blood and wearing his crown of thorns. The caption read, explaining to my friends with kids under six what it's been like isolating alone. <laughs> Mel Gibson having no blood on him and whatsoever, and the, the Jesus patiently listening while dripping in blood. Let me tell you, just I've got so much time in my hands. It's so quiet all the time. I'm so tired of watching Netflix. I mean, just yeah. But she goes on. She says, as a rule of social etiquette, when confronted with a pixelated screen of a dozen people, all of them inquiring somewhat half-heartedly as to how you are, it is appropriate to make the expected decent and accurate claim that you are fine and privileged, lucky compared to so many others, inconvenienced, yes, melancholy often, but not suffering, Mel Gibson, but not Christ. Mm. Even Christ, 20 feet in the air and bleeding all over himself, no doubt looked about him and wondered whether his agonies, when all was said and done, were, relatively speaking, in fact, better than those of the thieves and beggars to his left and right, whose sufferings long predated their present crucifixions, and who had no hope, unlike Christ, of an improved post-cross situation. Then she writes, When a bad day in your week finally arrives, and it comes to us all, by which I mean that particular moment when your sufferings, as puny as they may be in the wider scheme of things, direct themselves absolutely and only to you, as if precisely designed to destroy you and only you. At that point, it might be worth allowing yourself the admission of the reality of suffering. If not for yourself exactly, then in preparation for that next painful bout of video conferencing, so that you don't roll your eyes or laugh or puke while listening to what some other person seems to think is pain. She's talking about comparative suffering and the way that we minimize our own or other people's in order to, um, is a way of discounting it or um, even moralizing it, in fact. Uh, this is a common theme we have in, in Mockingbird. It's a way not to listen to someone, in fact, uh, when, when you minimize their, their, their pain by saying it's not as large, it's not as legitimate as those who are, you know, as the classic goes, starving in Africa. Um, and it's a way of boxing up and almost, cre- almost creating uh, suppression and resentment, I think. Uh, but w- w- what, did, what struck you? Uh, have you noticed this minimizing tendency to, to over-qualify when you're complaining or um, put other people's sufferings into a box? What do you think? Um, I mean, I think it definitely plays into what RJ was saying earlier about how like no one can be happy right now, too, which is interesting to me. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I feel guilty for even having the option to send my kids to a private school that opens. I mean, there's like this weird, like, everything is laden with um, something that I'm doing wrong or something that isn't 
isn't as bad as other people's situations, you know? Like, when we were, um, <laughs> this mom's group has been, like, sa has saved my life during quarantine, seriously. And, you know, we were talking about how hard this must be for single moms or single dads. To, and you're just like, but, like, that'll come up. And you're just like, oh, shit. Like, I'm, like I'm, I'm not dealing with anything compared to them. But then, like, it's this weird kind of fallout where you think that and then you feel bad. And then you look at your situation and then it sucks and you feel bad. And then you feel bad for feeling bad. And then you just yell at people, right. That you live with, if you're me. Um, and none of that is, is helps. I mean, like it, it genuinely helps for us to just say that this is like incredibly hard and has been incredibly hard for people. I, I also think if you're home with children, it's really damaging to be like, it could be worse. You know what I mean? And to be like, you're okay. Everything's okay. You're okay. Because uh, kids um, don't know what it means to put on a brave face or they shouldn't have to yet. And they are feeling like a lot of struggle. Most of them are. Um, mine certainly are. And I think it's pretty kind of dangerous actually to, to do this kind of comparative suffering with them to shut them down. Um, mm. I don't know. It's this is it's beautifully written. I mean, I just love this vision that she's cast, and it really is a vision of Jesus on the cross, looking out on us, but even looking out on the criminals and knowing like how much suffering they had endured that their lives ended up there. Like, gosh, that is just it's so powerful. We've talked a lot on the podcast about the American cult or sort of imperative of happiness, mm. right? That happiness is not just our birthright, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but also the law on which we, under which we labor, that we sort of have to be happy all the time. And and the more you've been blessed with, the more of an imperative you feel like you, you must be happy. And if you're not happy all the time, that there has to be something wrong with you. And then so not only do you feel unhappy, but you feel guilt about feeling unhappy. Um but I do know the longer this goes on, I notice, you know, with people that I know, congregants, it's just heavy. There's just a heaviness to things, mm -hmm. you know, that people are suffering. They're so lonely or struggling in their marriage because they're around each other all the time or, or um, you know, had to take, a, a, you know, retirement unexpectedly early and now they're not working, but they don't know what to do next. Uh, or they're struggling financially, or whatever it might be. Um, and God willing, you know, not that I, I try to harp on that too much, but God willing, it creates a little bit of freedom to tell a little bit more of the truth about what's actually going on. I, I still do think, you know, hey, we're Americans, we're Christians, you know, put on a, like you said, Sarah, put on a brave face. Um, but I'm sensing that starting to break down a little bit, not by choice, but by necessity, you know, that like uh, people just can't hide it anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even if they try to hide it emotionally, they can't hide it physically. Like yeah. physically, they, like they have to go to the doctor, you know, or they can't show up for something or, uh, yeah. So um, hopefully yeah. that, that I understand the impulse to minimize. And I do, I do preach about 
that. And we do, we do worship a God of hope and a God who is with us in the midst of our, of our suffering. And yet we have to be willing to tell the truth or not willing, but willing is the wrong word. Hopefully we have the freedom to tell the truth about what's actually going on. And that we who believe in Jesus, um, especially when we find ourselves someone actually is sharing the truth, we're not trying to redirect or minimize or employ, employ one of those strategies to make ourselves feel better or to try to fix the situation, but just to, um, to listen and to be present. There's something that useful about a perspective check. Yes. But one of the things, the reason I hate the phrase first world problems or the endless, um, basically the uh, checking of privilege, this idea, is that it, it, it does have a way of denying a person's suffering. Mary, Mary Carr once said that the, the most privileged, comfortable person you know has already suffered the torments of the damned. Um, and what she means is that everyone is in pain. Uh, and that if you are preaching to people out there as though they just need a better perspective on their pain, rather than people who are actively hurting and in need of some comfort, you're going to start to hate them. I mean, I really think yes. you're going to start to hate them. Yes. It doesn't mean that some things aren't worse than other things, or, there is, or that there is no such thing as privilege or first world problems. However, a lot of times when I hear those phrases used, it's used as a way to say, shut up. <laughs> it's used yeah, as a way to say, I don't want to hear it. I'm sick of it. And essentially, I, 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 I deny that I'm higher up on the hierarchy than you. And it, that's a really hard thing to say when, when we're all at the foot of the cross. It's also like staggering to me, like how often there will be those people in my life. And that I've said this before, but that's the beautiful like um, pulling away of the veil of ministry is that, you know, <laughs> I should say, if you don't preach comparative suffering, people will tell you about their suffering. And so when mm. when you when you live in that kind of a ministry, you you have the veil gets pulled back and you know these things about these people. And it's like it's crazy to me how many families I know that are, you know, super well connected and and very wealthy and and super super privileged kind of like check every box and and you know they they've lost a child. I mean like it's just like there's no one escapes that stuff. No one escapes. Or they have that a child stuff. but they have debilitating mental illness and yeah, they're institutionalized, like, it, you know. Yeah, it's it's yeah. this bizarre and you know I I do I say that a lot actually um especially to, to some of the women my age at church, because I think we can get really comparative. And it's like, you just have no idea what people, you know, are walking around with. Um, so, and I think right now, um, and, and let's name it. I mean, the division, especially financially and in terms of education in our country is going to get bigger because of this. Like that's just the reality. Um, and that's super depressing. Is it? It is super sad to me that I can pivot and put my kids in, you know, in the private church school, and that they can get a great education with very few kids in the classroom, and that there's this wide swath of children in Houston that don't have that. Like that sucks. It sucks. Um, and yet, like I, I mean, I think this speaks a lot to the last piece that we're going to read, right? Like, mm. yet I I just bring that to the cross. Like, I can't, I actually can't, oh my God, I definitely can't fix that right now. I'm in a bathrobe, you know what I mean? Like, you guys are the both crisis dressed. Of capacity. Like, yeah. I definitely can't fix that right now. Oh my God, that's going to make me cry just thinking about it. But I can't bring it 
to the cross and say, you know, Jesus, be a healer in whatever way is possible. I mean, that's kind of like all I can do right now with that. Um, I don't know. It's just, I think when we, when we live in denial or in this comparative suffering stuff for ourselves and for other people, it's just, I I just think it blocks the gospel. I really, really do. I think it absolutely blocks the gospel. Yeah. You know, Zadie is a interesting character because she's, she's, uh, she's English and she's a woman of color, which is, you know, that's a very small minority Mm -hmm. essentially. And she's also like this literature star. So she's got entree into multiple different worlds. worlds. But this something she wrote and she could basically use that as a way to say, I have, I, my experience of the world is entirely unique and I have no entree into other people's lives. Mm -hmm. And yet this is what she said to um, the Toronto star earlier this year. She said, I think the hardest thing for anyone is accepting that other people are as real as you are. Mm. That's it. Not using them as tools, not using them as examples or things to make yourself feel better or things to get over or under just accepting that they are absolutely as real as you are and have all the same, expectations and demands and it's so difficult that basically the only person that ever did it was Jesus Christ <laughs> the rest of us are very very far behind I spit crazy. my coffee all over the microphone we gotta have that. her speak man seriously I'd love it Zadie if you're out there if you're Come listening on. <laughs> and they find a vaccine <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's. (laughs) We're going to move on to the next piece. Uh, One of our favorite writers, another one, uh, Megan O'Geeblin, author who's interviewed in one of our magazines, the uh, Faith and Doubt issue. She started uh, an advice column in Wired magazine called Cloud Support. And um, I just anytime her name's attached to something, you, I want to read it, even if it sounds like something I'm not interested in reading at all. And this is a great case in point. She's answering someone who writes in to say, why do I keep refusing to install updates on my phone? <laughs> and uh, this person says, there are times when I seem to get some weird pleasure out of refusing the update. Okay. This is how O'Geeblin, a.k.a. The Cloud, responds. She says, for starters, I can assure you that you're not alone. Software updates are a modern locus of dread, one of those inconveniences that are dismissed as the price we pay for even greater convenience, though many people are, like you, uncertain of the trade-off. Updates are a digital form of hygiene, a concept that has been linked to holiness since the 17th century. I suspect, too, that you feel some shame about your failure to desire what is being freely offered. Technology has made our lives better in countless ways, and updates offer many additional improvements, new games, better maps, fresh wallpapers, fonts, emojis. To refuse this bounty feels like ingratitude and is, moreover, entirely futile. I sense also a historical dimension to your anxiety, one that raises a much larger question about the point of technological advancement itself. For what it's worth, the notion that progress is limitless and can continue indefinitely has been with us for only a few hundred years. Before that, history was presumed to be going somewhere, towards some final destination. The medieval layperson believed that history would culminate in the kingdom of God. The 18th century philosopher envisioned human reason as an ascending staircase that would one day lead to utopia. 
For us, progress is not a means towards some final state, a terminal update, but an end unto itself. The stairs continue indefinitely and are forever disappearing into the clouds. The peculiar menace, though, of such prompts to whether you should update your phones, uh, iOS X or whatever operating software, is that they present us with a false choice, the kind of bargains parents give to recalcitrant toddlers so as to flatter their sense of agency. We are not asked whether we desire the new software, only whether we will take it now or later. It could be that delaying the updates is an ascetic impulse. By that, she means asceticism like monks. A world of ever-increasing comforts and commodities is wonderful, of course, and arguably more than we deserve. But it fails to demand much of us in return. No sacrifices or acts of heroism or exercises of the will. Perhaps you are spacing out your exposure to novelty so as to build character or to increase your sense of wonder when you do finally accept. Or maybe, in refusing, you feel as though you've had a say in the trajectory of the future. The pressing later asserts a democratic will on questions that do not appear on any ballot. Here's are we sure she didn't go to Yale Divinity School for 100%? <laughs> <laughs> she went to Moody Bible Institute. Did in she fact. really? She's traveled a long way from her oh, origins. Gosh, I love Holy it. Holy moly. Amazing. This is what she said. She said, at the end of the day, the root cause of your refusal is less important than your ability to see it as deliberate so that it ceases to feel like one more automatic impulse. The machine's prompting is mechanical. Your rejection of it makes you human. Once that's cleared up, you should continue delaying the updates until you are no longer given a choice, so long as it imbues your life with a sense, however small, of meaning. This is one thing that all the advances of technology cannot provide for us. We must find it where we can. Oh my gosh, that was so good. Are you guys the type that, uh, that obsessive, that updates always uh, as, as a form of digital hygiene? Or do you, I, find, do you, do you relate I hate to that? Them. I hate them. Yeah. I'm not good at digital hygiene. I'm, I haven't, I'm, I'm not sure I'm good at hygiene, period. But I'm definitely not good at digital hygiene. Um, yeah, no, I always refuse these. Mostly just because, like, I'm a technology memo. And I'm just worried about what's going to happen. That'll look different. And I won't understand it. Um, or your phone will get a lot slower than it was before. Yeah. I, well, I don't even think I'm that aware of, like, I'm so unaware of that happening. Like, someone else has to point it out to me. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I just love this. I love how theological this piece is. This is just mm -hmm. fabulous. Um, she goes there. Yeah. I mean, like, just this idea of, like, what, these places where we find some sense of meaning, some sense of, like personhood of like who we are and the choices we make about ourselves and how um it inevitably updates anyway and that's a really fascinating sort of thing you know what i mean like that we get to sort of make all these sort of claims about ourselves but then we just actually are who we are anyway um mm. it, it reminds me of like the last conversation we had about like how all white women appear to be on a journey right now <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and like at the end of the day, like we're just sitting in our bathrobe in the broad light of day, not going anywhere. You know? <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's a funny thing. I do do I do relate to this impulse to like not want to be a not want to be told what to do. Yeah. But again, it's like, do you want it now or later? Because you're gonna take it, <laughs> and you want to say like, I don't want it. enough is changing. Please allow me to like still find a way to figure out where my music is or something mm -hmm. like that 
but yeah. this is pushing back makes you feel a little human in a world that is more virtual and mechanized than ever before. Yeah. As, well, as someone who's having to update absolutely everything in my life, um, my car insurance and my banks oh, sure. and my credit card addresses. And, you know, Jackson, our son, he turned 18 on May 20th and sent away for his like official Texas driver's license because he had a learner's permit. We still haven't received it. And we called the DMV and they're like, oh, sorry, we, you don't have a Texas address anymore. We can't actually give you a driver's license. And so we're like, uh, okay, I don't know what to do about that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, I can't tell you how many things, like I can't imagine when I'm going to switch out my Texas license plates. Like that's not happening for a long time. <laughs> right. Know? Until you absolutely have to. Until I absolutely yeah. have to, which I'm just coping on the pandemic to grant me a little bit of grace and mercy. Uh, but what it made me think of actually was, you know, when you walk into a home, like a nice home, but older people live there and you look at all their decor and it's really nice, but also clearly like about 30 years old. Yeah. You know, and I've always thought to myself, like, huh, this is a little, yeah, this is a little sad, right? Like clearly this, this used to be in fashion. It's not anymore. Clearly this harkens back to a time when they were working before they were in a fixed income and they just don't sure. have the money to update it. And this is kind of where they got stuck, right? They got stuck in like 1978 or something like right. that. Right. Stalled I, out. Yeah. Yeah. They haven't updated in forever. But maybe it felt, not. It felt kind of sad. But now, you know, we're living in a new house and um, I would say a good quarter of our stuff is still in boxes, A, because we're in the middle of a pandemic and our life is insane, but also because we want to just sort of do everything right and we want to move in well and have it be beautiful and, and, and sort of perfect and updated in the right way. Mm -hmm. And I have thought to myself, like, is it worth it? Like, maybe it, maybe it just, maybe I just don't, maybe I need to stop updating and just live and and maybe what it is in those older people's houses it's not they it's not a resource question it's just a priority question and they stopped caring mm. they stopped caring about updating because other things just mattered more you know there were other like they had kids to put through college yeah or or they who know or they were just like for, like who cares like we they're like just our like house really comfortable they're just comfortable yeah. and, they, and they don't they're not beholden to this constant need to update and renovate and perfect and because you can get on that cycle right where you oh, have to yeah. got to redo the kitchen every 10 years i think people are in that cycle right now your They're wife's in interior stuff like she knows it's like everyone's looking at their stuff and wanting to redo it and yeah but so like maybe I'm, yeah something it's, beautiful I, about just giving up and saying you know what it doesn't matter I don't yeah. care. <laughs> There's, yeah. I'd rather spend my time reading so you or can trace with my friends uh, or or what are you yeah. what are you saying, Dave? Well, you can trace someone's home decor back to when not when they resigned, but perhaps when they started uh, gave living. Up. When, when they, they actually started living. When they achieved some sort of peace. I mean, I'm sure there's. It, it could probably it goes be both. both ways. It could be yeah. maybe they did get really depressed in 1984, and that's sort of where things <laughs> yeah. stopped. I mean, um, but hey, is it, yet, isn't that when life actually begins? You know, I think I said to someone like, you know, you're an adult when life just becomes completely overwhelming and you're living one day at a time. <laughs> you know, like that's, uh, uh, yeah. Well, this idea that she talks about. I have none of my college students listen to that. <laughs> is that true or not true? I mean, it's true, but I don't want them to know that. <laughs> 
What did the, we what were, did they say um, in This American Life, the Penn State episode? You know, I love the bar owner. I love hanging out with these young kids because life hasn't kicked them in the teeth yet. <laughs> you know, there's a so the um the the paperback edition of Seculosity is about to come out, and it's okay. it's got like Ooh. it's got uh, it's got sixty new pages. This to episode it. brought to you by the paperback <laughs> edition. <laughs> well, they were they, and th- smoking. And smoke and so this is the tobacco industry. Um, there is a uh, there's a Q and A at the end where I get to talk about sort of like what's happened since the book was published, and I was saying that like um, the amount of things people have sent me uh, that relate to seculosity it just kind of increases every single day. But one of the mm. things is we, we maybe we talked about it, but Audible created an innovation cathedral. And uh, innovation has become uh, a, and I talk about it in there, but it's it has become like a um, a secular virtue, mm-hmm. and uh, like a virtue capital capital V, and uh, it for its own sake, and this sense that Ogibwan mentions is innovation is so always seen as good, but also completely endless. There's actually something kind of nihilistic about it. Yes. It's not leading anywhere. It's yes. terrible. Um, and, it's like websites, um, <laughs> endless like yeah. updating. I know, and I, I say this as someone who's. We, I've spent like most of the year redesigning the Mockingbird website. Yes, it, it. You wonder this idea that progress is good for its own sake, is a is a modern thing, and that you know, um, and it, it 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 carries with it just as much of a burden of this treadmill type feeling that is not neutral. In fact. Um, because I do like, for, by the way, one of the things I think I'll remember about the pandemic, when I think about the pandemic, there's lots of things I'll remember. One of the things, one of the images I'll have is basically looking for charging cords and chargers nonstop. Like oh, everything yeah. is always in need of being charged and yeah. it's at about a 20%. And probably in 20 years, everything will be wirelessly charged and we won't have any of these things in our lives. But that's one of the things we were doing. And I, I look forward to the day when I don't have to yell at my kids like what did you do with the charger you know? yeah yeah <laughs> and uh, that kind of innovation I, i'm excited about you know i was but just it, thinking I where was, does it lead yeah sorry one of my good friends has said in this time and it's like my favorite thing i'm not gonna get better right now this is not a time in my life when i'm gonna get better things are not gonna improve in my life right now and I like play that over in my head because I think, I mean, she said it and I was like, wow, that's the gospel. <laughs> like She's just like, this is just not a that moment forever. when things are going to get better. Like I'm not getting better personally. My kids are not getting better. My husband's not getting better. And I think like I found some freedom in that. Um, and I, I mean, I love the way that kind of compares to technology. It's like things are not, we, I can't, I can't, that can't be expected of me, you know? So I can't, I can't update. So what you're saying is that Sarah's the the Condon interior decorating will be basically vintage 2019. It probably will be forever. Yes, just, just, yes. Yes, just forever. <laughs> yeah. No, but Archie, I completely relate to that image too because there's always like a like a, a sadness or um. A, a, it's like oh, um, you look, they used to be alive. Um. Yeah, they used to be, and, and and like a pity involved in that, and maybe uh, our, our 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 virtues are completely backward. 
Yes. Yeah. There's yeah. something to that prioritization. Now we're gonna we're gonna end with uh, a powerhouse of a of a piece uh, that was it's actually taken from a talk given by Giles Fraser. Giles Fraser is a uh, controversial and pugnacious uh, English. He's a, he's a priest in the Church of England as well as a pundit and a writer. He used to have a column in the Guardian, and he's uh, uh, he's he he. He just people feel strongly about him. I don't know um, who he is. I feel like we're gonna get in trouble for reading no, his no. Stuff. I mean, he's okay. just he just has a, a strong opinions about a lot of different things, mm. and he's he's very difficult to place. He's not he's he, he used to be he used to be seen as very left, and now he, then he he's seen as more conservative, and then he's then he's left, and he's right. I mean, he's he's kind of all over the Good. place, and it's he's really driven by, I think, a deeper conviction about Christianity than about mm. politics. Mm-hmm. Um, he gave a lecture. Um, called uh, at the University of Sheffield in February, right before, you know, everything closed down, called Christianity and Morality, the Story of an Uneasy Relationship. And one of the phrases he coins is called the crisis of capacity. And uh, what he's saying is that the real crisis uh, that human beings deal with when it comes to morality is not uh, knowing what what they should do, but uh, being able to actually do that thing. So how how moral can a person be? And he talks about Peter Singer, who you know, uh, and 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 despite his radical uh, ethics, still would indulge his kids at Christmas time and saying, you know, you you kind of have to make exceptions because there's there's a crisis of capacity. But it, towards the end, he really spells out what this means. It, by the way, he talks about Luther, he talks about Pelagius, he talks about everything. It's it, as Todd Brewer said, if he'd given this at a Mockingbird conference, everyone would have, that, that would have been the presentation everyone talked about all weekend. Um, but this is what he says. <clears throat> he says, uh, he, after leaving the theology behind, this is the close of the talk. He says, there's a woman I know, I'm going to call her Sarah, who's been struggling with a really desperate situation. At church, she befriended a really lovely woman who's just escaped from Iran after the authorities raided her house group and took away her fellow Christians to God knows what ghastly fate. This Iranian woman, Nahid, we'll call her, escaped from Iran to Turkey, hidden in the back of a vegetable truck, leaving behind a well-paid job at the university. She had no choice but to put herself in the hands of traffickers who put her on a flight to England, not knowing a soul in that country, in this country, he says. She came to church, and Sarah met her and took pity on her and offered her a bed in her house. The problem was, however, that Sarah had just got married and was about to move in with her new husband, and the house in which she had offered Nahid shelter was on the market, and there was no bedroom for her in the new house. Sarah was frantic. As the sale of her property was approaching completion, she spent days and days trying to get Nahid a room and to get her work. Even though Nahid had been accepted by the home office as a legitimate asylum seeker, it was proving impossible to persuade would-be home employers to take her on, despite the fact that she had considerable qualifications. Sarah persuaded other members of the church to help financially support Nahid, but the burden started to get crippling and the situation seemed unsustainable. One Sunday, Sarah arrived in church at her wit's end. Nahid was facing eviction and she had nowhere else to go. The local authorities said Nahid was not their responsibility. Church must do more for Nahid, Sarah insisted. Uh, And she was right. But our little church was also supporting a number of other people in desperate situations. Now, naturally, you want to know how this situation turns out, and the truth is I do not know. The situation is ongoing, and it is indeed tragic. Hmm. At times in church, we feel crushed by the weight of demand, and we are aware that there are times when our capacity runs out, that we sit in the pews, and that we cry that the world is thus, and that we have reached the end of what we're capable of, that we have been beaten. 
Now, of course, the church is a place of moral concern. I'm not denying it, but it's also a space, and perhaps it's unique in this regard, where we can go and take our failures, where our failures can just be placed, articulated, and held. Where better a place to articulate a crisis of capacity, or I can do no more, than before the cross, that instrument of extreme horror and violence before which even Jesus himself spoke of being forsaken by God. For many... This, the church, is the place to come when the words on our lips are morally, I cannot fix this, I cannot do more. This is the point at which religion makes a leap from being a matter of moral concern to a place of salvation and our need for it. This is why I think the best semi-secular model of what the church should look like is probably that of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, the church employs a different vocabulary to AA, but the way it speaks about human life is remarkably similar. Fundamentally, it's not about being good. It's about being saved. Christianity, you see, properly understood, is a religion of losers, that worst of playground insults. Mm. For not only do we not want to be a loser, we don't even want to associate with losers. We pointedly shun them as if some of their loserness might rub off on us. Or rather, more honestly, we shun losers because others might recognize us amongst their number and we secretly fear that this might be true. We're not losers, we say. And so the cock crows three times. But it is true. Deep failure, the failure of our lives, is something that we occasionally contemplate in the middle of the night in those moments of terrifying honesty before we get up and dress for success. And the facade of success we present to the world is commonly a desperate attempt to ward off this knowledge, which is knowledge of our failure. Christianity ultimately has got nothing to do with being better people. It's everything to do with the unvarnished truth about human failure. There is no way that the top hundred business leaders would endorse the cross. It's life without the advertising, without the accoutrements of success. It's life on a zero hours contract where at any moment we can be told that we are not needed. The Christian story, like the best sort of terrifying psychoanalysis, strips you down to nothing in order for you to face yourself anew. Now this, he says, is the crisis of capacity. For it turns out that losers are not despised or rejected, not ultimately. In fact, losers can discover something about themselves that winners won't ever appreciate, that they are loved and wanted simply because of who they are and not because of what they can achieve, that human worth is not indexed to worldly success, moral or otherwise. This is revealed theologically, precisely at the greatest point of dejection. So churches cannot be blamed for failing to live up to this austere and wonderful message. The worst churches judge their successes in entirely worldly terms by counting their followers. Their websites show images of happy, uncomplicated, moral people doing good, improving stuff in the community. But if I'm right about the meaning of Christ's passion, then the church is at its best when it fails and it recognizes that we are failures, when it gives, off, when it gives up on all the ecclesiastical glitter, when the weed starts to break through the floor, and when it shows others that failure is nothing of the sort. That's why the cross is the real site of triumph, the moment of great success, because our failure is recognized and then redeemed. Alleluia. I mean, I feel like the last three pieces you've read from, we just need to ask these people to show up for our next conference, like, and we're done. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I will, and that sounds like a great conference. Like, oh my gosh, the thing about church websites and happy, uncomplicated, moral people, like, oh. I mean, it does. I talked about this on the podcast because we just found out about it. 
when we did the podcast um, in Tyler and um, RJ had abandoned us. But um, just kidding. Aaron Zimmer was there. It was great. But yeah, I, I recognized my uh, my limited capacity. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about like how, you know, we'd at that point we had had this family member, which we're now like in, in close relationship with, but this family member who, um, uh, is related to us that we didn't know about. I think that's a, probably the most respectful way to put it. Cause it's not my story to tell in so many ways, but, um, you know, find us and found us online and saw us on the church websites and was like, Nope. You know what I mean? <laughs> like these people look moral. They look really churchy. I don't have anything to do with them. I mean, they won't want to have anything to do with me and, um, and hope against hope. I mean, against all hope, he, he reached out anyway. And it's been such a powerful life giving thing for all of us. Um, but I, I think that is like, it's, it's at what he pinpoints there about Christianity being for losers and, um, gosh, there's just so much there. I find so much relief in that. I find so much relief in that. Um, I mean, <laughs> I went to our neighborhood pool yesterday, which is not like RJ's old neighborhood pool. And it's such a scene. And I'm like, how do people have the energy for a scene right now? <laughs> like, you know, there's like big broad hats and leopard print swimsuits and women who've obviously had time to exercise. And I'm like, how do we have energy for this right now? <laughs> like, um, stairs in the corner of a Virginia slim. Exactly. <laughs> and like a giant cover up. Cause I've got rolls. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, I can't do it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, there's some comfort and and also like I always have to say whenever I say things like that there's some comfort not just in me feeling like a loser and finding some superiority in that which is easy to do but in me recognizing that like everyone at the pool is a loser you know what I mean like and that there's some there's some beauty in that there's actually some beauty in that that makes me like more able to talk to people that perhaps I feel like I'm a loser and they're not like more able to really see these people in a loving way because of this miracle of Jesus. Just total, absolute. I mean, I know some, maybe some people listen to this podcast and they're like, oh, they say the same thing every time. It's because every time I hear stuff like this, every time someone, I mean, right, we've heard this before. We've heard someone write this before. But every time it gets written in a slightly different way by a different person from a different perspective, it hits me again all all over again like for the first time it's just mm -hmm. it's just incredibly moving so i'm so thankful for this like this i feel like i needed to hear this today mm -hmm. i was talking with a friend of mine who's also an episcopal priest and he was telling me about a woman in his church um who's having a hard time and been having a hard time for years and and probably had some mental issues and tough time holding down a job. Husband had passed away and she'd been living with various members of the church on and off because she was loved and because it was a church and they wanted to provide for her, but she just burned a lot of bridges. Um, and he wasn't, he just wasn't sure what to do, how to provide for him. They, they weren't sure what to do as a church. And, uh, and then the pandemic hit and as a lot of churches did, um, he, sort of identified a group of leaders and then divided up the members of the church for those leaders to call every mm -hmm. so often, right? And in the midst of that, this woman 
ended up being assigned to one of those colors kind of by accident. You know, he said, if, if, if I'd really, if I'd thought about it, I would have never, mm-hmm. I would have taken care of it myself. You know, I would have never put this burden on someone in the church. And then it turned out the caller that this woman, the person who called this woman, who she was assigned to, um, had some connections in the diocese and knew about a fund that was specifically for sort of older retired people who were having a tough time making ends meet. To- just total coincidence. And and through that, and through some other things, this woman actually found, a, this, this troubled woman found a kind of permanent housing solution that she could afford that wasn't in someone's house, mm. you know? And he was just saying it was such a powerful reminder that even when you feel like you've reached the end of yourself and there's nothing more you can do and you're totally confused and you throw your hands up and it seems like you're at the end, that God is there and provides and actually does show up, you know, and doesn't just show up to love people who are losers, but actually shows up in tangible ways where you say, that was a miracle. It's a miracle. And actually it was a mistake that that woman got assigned to just the right person who could help see her through the situation and put sort of save her, not, and not just in an eternal way, but in kind of a temporal way. And I think that that is so true because I've experienced that. And, as, um, and not to be like super Pollyanna-ish, but I'm going to say, man, like this has not been easy these past few months, but there have been so many ways, and I'm sure you, Sarah, you and Josh and Dave and you know, Paul Walker, you've seen this too. There are ways that God has shown up, you know, uh, tangible ways that he has provided when it felt like I was at the end of my own resources. And, you know, I was saying to my, um, my senior warden, which is the Episcopal term for kind of chair of the board or whatever, senior volunteer leader, you know, there are days when you feel like you're carrying, and this is true not just for people in church work, but for anyone. There are days when you feel like you're carrying everything yourself, and then there are days that you feel like you're being carried. Um, And those days when you know you're being carried, um, they get you through the rest of the time because you need those reminders that you're not in it alone, that there is someone who's on your side. Again, not just yes on the cross, yes when you die, but also today and tomorrow. Um, and, And... so I've experienced that powerfully the past few weeks, and my guess is a number of our listeners have as well, and you guys have as well. So oh. I, I find that tremendously hopeful. RJ, that's, a, that's so good. Gosh. I just, I, I have to say, I have to respond to that. I have to say one thing that I think is such an important lesson for us to take away in churches from this is that if we think the ultimate goal of a church is to fix things, then when when we are faced with an unfixable situation, we are we are disappointed in God in a way that's pretty unfair. We're disappointed in our own abilities in a way that will only separate us from God's grace. Um, and it's really dangerous. And I think a lot of mainstream Christianity feels like it's the church's role to fix things. And the church is actually, generally speaking, terrible at fixing things because they're social service organizations with people with educations that are able to do that. We we can only do so much. But if you think that the the ultimate purpose of the church 
is is to preach, you know, Christ crucified for sinners and salvation, then that's always, even when there's nothing else you can do to help or to fix, that is always a place that you can turn to. You can always stand at the foot of the cross, you know? And I, I also think that, that when we're able to do that, we're able to see our own mistakes and our own failures as, as God just getting us ready for a miracle. Hmm. And I think, you know, like what RJ's talking about the situation with a friend, it's like, maybe when we find ourselves in those moments, like it's totally just God getting us ready for something miraculous to happen. And, and in the moment when we stop trying to fix it, when we're just like, I'm done, I mean, I don't know. I've had that experience so many times in my life. Like, that's the moment when you're like, look out, you know, because something's going to guess. Guess what? You're not good at this. You know what I mean? And something's going to happen that goes way beyond your abilities, way beyond your capacity. And and you're just going to sit there and watch it happen. My uh, that's my brother, John, was preaching a sermon recently on the Old Testament story of uh, Joseph. And uh, the reading was from, I think, Genesis chapter 37 or something, which is just a heinous litany of all the terrible things that happened to Joseph, you know, thrown into the, the well, sold off his brothers, you know, slavery, Egypt, it's terrible. And, and yet, um, he you says, you know, school their kids. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Well, it, it, the the story is the rest of Genesis. It sort of goes to like chapter fifty or something, and he says it's it's one of the most beautiful stories of uh, redemption ever told and ever recorded. And he says that the truth is, though, we're all in chapter thirty-seven right now. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, that's okay. It doesn't mean yeah. that the ending has been written. And you know, yeah. some of us maybe maybe not. We do get glimpses like R.J. Like your friend has gotten, and I've certainly seen it in our own, where the crisis of capacity is answered with the miracle of God's, uh, you know, abundance and uh, in uh, sort of super overcapacity. Um, and uh, you, you have seen that. But, you know, one of the funny things about the pandemic is we've got, we've, it's been going on long enough that we've all gone through phases where we feel like we hit a crisis point and then something happened and then, then we continue on and then there's another crisis point and yeah. then, there's a up, then there's a happy thing and then there's another one. And I think that that's actually, a, 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 that's just like the pandemic is, re, re, do, is revealing a lot of things to us about life. I think that that lengthy sort of easing into it this these troughs and 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 peaks and valleys, um, that's also how where where God is too in the in the these constant. Uh, it's just a little bit more, um, I don't know, uh, discernible perhaps, or maybe that's a gift in and of itself. RJ, well, it reminds me. You're talking with your bro- brother. I think he was him who said this to me, and this relates to the updating article too. He said, you know, RJ, generally my um, my approach to tackling an intractable problem is I just procrastinate uh, so long that eventually it takes care of itself. That's amazing you know? advice. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. so true. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, it, you know, he, he acknowledged it wasn't a virtue. No, um, I like but, it. But sooner or later, God shows up. And hey, isn't that the Christian hope? Hey, man, <laughs> sooner or later... Jesus is going to show up. Right. And in the meantime, we'll just procrastinate dealing with most of our problems. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, it's the, you know, don't just do something, sit there. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, um, so I think uh, that's, that's a lot. Uh, thank you, the two of you, for going on, for Sarah, for going on this journey today. Yes, um, <laughs> I'll still like be in we... a bathrobe five hours from now. So as long as the journey involves a bathrobe, we're good. Well, we'll check in maybe in about 10 days or so to see Still how be in the bathrobe. It's, 
all going. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, hopefully it won't be the polka dot one. It'll be the other one. That's, It'll you know, be the, the pink one from my grandmother. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, blessings to the two of you. Uh, and we'll talk to you soon. You okay, too, bye, Dave. Friends. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Hey.